Hello and welcome back to the HRW Shift podcast. This episode is a special edition that was recorded during our 2023 Celebration of Behavioural Science Day, where our team tackled a range of questions from our clients. On this episode, you'll hear from several of our Shift members, including Alex Petrake, Katie Irving, Sakit Rao, Ollie Day, Tony Jang, Jeremy Koloski and Rhiannon Connolly. We hope you enjoy listening. Are there any strategies that work for particular biases? When I think of strategy and specific categories of biases, I think in particular about the behavior change wheel, which we use a lot at HRW. It's an academically validated tool, which can be used to match biases with strategies or intervention functions that have been proven to work in the face of the categories that that particular bias finds itself in. So firstly, we diagnose the bias into three categories uh, before we use the behavior change wheel, those categories are capability, motivation, and opportunity. And to give you an example, I don't know how an engine works. So that for me is a lack of psychological capability. So in that case, to learn how an engine works and understand it, then education would be a useful strategy that I can get from the behavior change wheel. Training and enablement, uh, good interventions that can help. But if I don't know, let's say I don't know how to swim, then no amount of education can help me and I need to physically learn how to do it. So training in this case would be a key intervention to use. We do also look at experimental interventions. So often when it comes to particular psychological biases, there are papers that look at how that particular bias has been tackled in the wild and what interventions have been proven successful. And UCL, who are the originators of the behavior change wheel, have been collecting some of the evidence on what interventions are most effective. But I think, for example, about learned helplessness, which is when people have faced a lot of difficulty or struggled to be successful, they start to then believe and behave in a helpless manner. That's studied a lot in in academia and academics because there's a lot of students who maybe struggle with a particular subject and from papers written in academia about how this has been overcome what types of interventions have been successful we can pull strategies so in that instance it's about giving people a greater sense of control um, over their environment so helping to give them options and choice and also helping them to realize that times have changed and so something in their environment mm-hmm. has changed that means they will be more successful this time How do we know what to prioritize on behavior change? I think like Katie mentioned, context is absolutely essential and context is king is the phrase that goes around in behavioral science. And so when it comes to behavior change, we we tend to fixate as a default option to persuade the individual to do a particular action. But sometimes that may not be the best strategy and maybe something like creating opportunities or informing people can be more effective. For instance, taking the example of swimming again, like Alex said, if we were to persuade someone who does not know how to swim or has hydrophobia, who's just scared of water, I don't think that would be essential or important in in that context and therefore not a great idea. And similarly, in just talking about a bit about logistical friction, if someone had wanted to swim, but their nearest pool was kilometers away, um, that wouldn't make it the most feasible for them to adopt as a behavioral change strategy. And so understanding context and looking at uh, different solutions for different people, I think that's kind of the way to go forward. Will AI replace market research or behavioral science? Uh, That's a very good question. I'd say just like 
calculators don't replace mathematicians. AI doesn't mean the end of people who would be focused on learning what makes others tick and how to influence them and influence change. Behavioral science is all about building up knowledge about how things like our mental processes, our environment, our habits, how all of those things either lead to or prevent behavior. And I think AI is really useful to build up that knowledge and build up ways that are effective to act based on that knowledge, as Katie mentioned about the UCL. Uh, behavior change team yeah i think like, just how computers need a deeper understanding of how the universe works and as able to do more advanced physics and things like that i think ai means more and richer data for behavioral scientists to, to interpret and make rec- recommendations from so even if it is with a little help from ai how can you separate out biases to tackle when they are all related to one another Often, you know, a lot of clients think that it's going to be kind of algorithmic. Like if you tackle the lack of information, then people are going to be informed and then they're going to become motivated. And then this, so they think that it's more like sequential in the way that they interact. And certainly, yeah, lots of biases intersect with one another and amplify or contract one another. But you still need to kind of tackle them each individually to try and collectively nudge people towards a global behavior change. So again, like often when you start talking about biases or the behavioral phenomena that are sitting behind decisions, clients are like, okay, so in what order we tackle these and our strategy needs to be super sequential, but that's not necessarily how it plays out in real life. And just to like add on to that, for instance, when we have something like cues where we talk about signals, a bias that kind of goes well with that is something like concreteness. So it talks about how clearly can we see the cues? Can physicians really identify a particular signal or is that very clear or can it be more concrete or is it more ambiguous? And I think that's the understanding of how we can separate out a particular situation and look at what is more pertinent to the particular situation. Is it about making the cue more visible and concrete or is it just in general anything about ambiguity? So that's another way to look at a particular situation and that and separate out biases. Agreed. And I think you see in many of our Fathom reviews where we synthesize previous research, you'll often see logic models or diagrams showing how all of those biases do interrelate. So whereas it's, it, it's effective to try and tackle them individually, so you're tackling those root causes, also it's really important to recognize where they do interconnect. And I think that's something we're pretty good at delivering as well. everyone is an individual how can you account for that in behavioral science there are two parts to this answer the first part is around so behavioral science in general predicts that on average in certain contexts and certain situations will behave in particular way so regardless of who the individual is at the end of the day we're human we're still going to be subject to certain biases heuristics on average if we're put in a certain situation. So for example, you know, um, we tend to follow social norms unconsciously, right? If we see that everyone, I don't know, in an elevator faces one way, our gut reaction is to face another way. It doesn't matter what your personality type is or anything, where, because we're human, we're likely to do this. But the second part of my answer to this is, of course, individuals are different, right? We all have different personalities. We do all have different experiences that shapes our decision-making. So if we really do want to target 
specific individuals or at least specific groups of individuals through behavioral science will definitely suggest segmenting based on either personalities or attitudes or people's past behaviors. And this can allow us to identify which segments are more subject to certain biases than others, because we often find that there are people that for whatever reason, for example, they'll be more prone to listen to their HCP more, they're more prone to authority bias, versus there are people who are kind of more independent, they want to learn things for themselves, they're more what we would call maximizers. So there are different personality types, and the only way we can really look at this, examine this, is through segmenting them and conducting market research segmentation. How can I sell behavioral science internally at my company? I think the most important thing is to demonstrate the value of behavioral science with tangible real world examples. So maybe run through a case that shows some quantifiable impact that behavioral science has had. The crucial thing here is um, to not only detail the behavioral insights and how they affect decision-making, but to describe how the behavioral drivers can be leveraged and how the behavioral barriers can be mitigated in order to change real world behavior. So I always say it's really interesting and informative to see these biases and these heuristics, but really where the rubber hits the road is with the interventions that target them. Another way to open the door to the idea of applying behavioral science at your company is to run master classes and trainings on some of the fundamentals of behavioral science and really letting your passion shine through. I think in my experience, in the behavioral science sphere especially, people tend to be really passionate about the potential of the insights and its importance for the real world. Um, and I think it's really vital for that passion to come across when you're communicating about behavioral science. Just to build on what Jeremy was saying there as well, I think a lot of times we do see that client teams really start to light up and really engage with the behavioral science stuff when they see how it applies to their actual business challenge. Again, it feels very academic. Again, we've tr tried to talk a lot about a lot of case studies today, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have been like, oh, you know, that does sound like my area as well. Um, but when you see it really applied in a tangible, specific way to your particular brand in your particular context and hearing about your specific customers, it does make it a little bit like when you buy like a new car and then you see that make of car everywhere. As soon as you start to see it in your own context, you, you really understand it so much more and you're better able to kind of spot it when it happens in the wild. What is your favorite bias? For me, one of the most interesting biases is the omission bias, which says that we view harms caused by action as worse than those caused by inaction. A classic example of this is the trolley problem, which is a thought experiment in philosophy. Most of us have heard of the trolley problem before. There is a train rattling down the tracks on its way to colliding with and instantly killing five people. But luckily, you're the conductor and you can pull a lever to change the course of the train. The problem is, if you pull the lever, the train will run over one hapless bystander who's standing on the other track. So you're left with this moral dilemma. Do you stand by and allow the train to run its initial course and kill those five people, which is allowing a passive harm to happen? Or do you intervene and save the five while killing the one, which is pursuing an active harm for the quote unquote greater good? 
I'm a big fan of moral psychology and philosophy in general. So any psychological bias that can get you to question your knee-jerk moral instincts like this one is a really fascinating one to me. But in healthcare, we often see that patients or doctors are weighing the option of medically intervening and potentially causing that active harm versus standing by and letting the disease take its course and potentially causing that passive harm. And for a more charged example, we all faced this dilemma when we had to decide whether to take the COVID vaccine or to wait around to see whether we would contract COVID and how bad of a case we would get. So you can quickly enter this really moral thorny territory with no easy answers, but it's a really interesting bias to encounter in healthcare and to try to unpick and understand and intervene if necessary. I wanted to talk about inattentional blindness, which is my favorite bias. So inattentional blindness is times where our attention is elsewhere. And so we can still miss things that are right in front of us. And the reason I like inattentional blindness is twofold. One is that it does what it says on the tin. So it's quite a mouthful to say inattentional blindness, but it is very descriptive and apt term. The second reason is that I love anything that has to do with the science of attention. I think it's a really underappreciated area where we often assume that our mind is a bit like a video recorder and that we're going to recall everything. And if we need to, we can kind of retrospectively recall things that we weren't actively paying attention to. But actually, attention is an incredibly powerful inhibitor of memory in that we often miss things because we're drawn to something else that is more salient for whatever reason. The example that I love about the gorilla, <laughs> where yeah. people were asked to count, I think it was basketball passes between players, and then someone just came on the pitch dressed as a gorilla. And a lot of people didn't notice it because they were not paying attention for, they're not looking out for gorillas. And this was repeated again with KCPs and I think scans of, of lungs and like little gorillas were placed there yeah. and a lot of times they weren't spotted because doctors obviously were not looking for gorillas so they were, they were inattentionally blind to seeing gorillas even though they were right in front of them. Personal favourite of mine is the ostrich effect. First of all because I mean the name in and of itself is just really entertaining and it leads you to think well the ostrich effect and immediately it conjures to mind that stereotype of an ostrich burying its head in the sand but that is exactly what the bias is about so it's about when there is something that is um, negative news or something that we're frightened of sometimes we'll have a tendency to instead of facing it full-on and addressing it we'll just kind of pretend that that's not there and just look away over here so if you've ever come home and you've seen your um doormat with a couple of you know brown envelopes on it and you've looked at that and you've gone or that's my credit card and bank statement for Christmas. And I went a little bit overboard this year. I'm just going to put that on the shelf over here. And I'm, yeah, I might look at that a bit later. You know what's in there. You know that you went overboard at Christmas. You know, you're not fooling anybody. But it's just that deflection. It's uh, I'm not going to engage in that because I don't want to. I would prefer to bury my head in the sand and pretend that everything is fine and not deal with it. We see these in patients, so sometimes they will have symptoms of cancer or very serious illnesses that they know are serious, but they don't want to think about it because the prospect of a serious illness is too scary or intimidating for them. So they pretend that that isn't happening. So it's a very, I think, human and relatable bias, which is also why I love it. Well, uh, for anyone who saw my session earlier, you'll know that my current favourite bias is Maslow's Hammer. 
which is from the phrase, when all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. This is all about people you going to their default familiar problem when that's like the tool that is most top of mind for them. That's their favorite, most comfortable tool they've got. And I think you see that in HCP decisions of people going with the treatment approach they're comfortable with or in marketing, people going with education or persuasive campaigns when actually things that might support networking or Skillshare workshops might better target that root cause of behavior change. So yeah, for me, it's Maslow's hammer. I'd say my favorite bias is the illusion of choice. So that's the idea that while we tend to think that more choice is better, um, and of course there are times where more choice is better, what it tends to lead to is choice overload where we become very overwhelmed with too many choices. It can lead to choice paralysis where we don't know which decision to make. It can lead to, I don't know, even kind of just choosing options that you actually wouldn't be so happy with had you taken the time to evaluate every single option. And I really like this one because it has a lot of connections to happiness, right? Because there's a, there's a lot of research out there that's showing recently that in today's society, you have so many choices in terms of, for example, your career path or the partner you wish to take or all the different food you could eat in a day or the credit cards you can take. There's so many options that you make every single day, so many choices. And there's an argument that that can lead to, you know, becoming less happy because there's a connection where, because we're uh, overwhelmed with choice all the time, we feel like the choices that we do make are unsatisfactory. We might regret not choosing a different option because we chose a certain option, right? There's a lot more regret now. Whereas if you think back hundreds of years ago, your choices were a lot more limited. You don't, you didn't really have that much of a choice on what you could eat. You didn't have that much of a choice on what your career would be, right? So there, there was a lot less regret and your, you know, your path was a lot more set and defined. Um, and I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, are we happier with more choice now or are we happier when our choices have been made for us? So that's why I think the illusion of choice is my favorite bias. In a similar spirit, my, my favorite bias is actually the contrast effect where we do talk about choices and we have comparison between the choices. And it's only when we have that comparison that we can come to a result of which one is better or which one is, is inferior. And this kind of reminds me of this saying that I grew up listening to. It was always about uh, comparison is the thief of joy. Um, and it's very, very important because I'm the younger sibling. And when I would get the smaller uh, share of the chocolate is when my brother would conveniently come and say, comparison is the thief of joy. So if I got 30% of a chocolate bar and I would just had that without any context, I would have been happy. But then my brother goes around with this other 70% of the chocolate bar and then well, now I'm not so happy, right? And the contrast effect, especially in a healthcare setting, while maybe not that funny, can be very crucial because when we look at different types of disease areas, when we're making that comparison, for instance, when we're looking at dermatology versus oncology, there's a vast difference in terms of importance and that comparison kind of comes into play. And yeah, also on a personal note, I think contrast effect is one of my favorite biases. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to get in touch, you can contact us by email at shift at hrwhealthcare.com or you can find us on Instagram at hrwhealthcare.